0: So this morning, it's time to move on to great equanimity. Some of you may very well think, I need it. (laughs) And you're right. You're right. We all need it. We all need it. To enable a bit of continuum from Saturday evening to this morning, from the furnace to the cooler. Last evening I didn't lose control. Everything I said was choreographed before I came. I gave signals, sig- signals, signals, signals. What, what was that? The oh, the volume, yeah. I signaled and signaled that, you know, I'm not losing it here. doesn't mean anybody has to like what I'm saying but it was all very premeditated and it came from the same motivation as the motivation for every other talk I've given since I've been here. It hasn't changed. The anger was not for a moment. I will just tell you, you don't have to believe anything I'm saying, but for the anger was not for a moment directed to any sentient being. Right after that talk, if I would met, met the person who read that article, I would have greeted him in the same way I greet any of you. He's a sentient being, Buddha nature, my mother, my father. But we don't draw that distinction very often in the West. If you're angry at some quality, then you have to be angry at the the person who carries the quality. We don't have a tradition of wrath that stems from compassion. But if you're practicing vajrayani, you better get get used to it. It's not just peaceful deities. Everything hinges on motivation. And then trusting the motivation of the other person. If you don't trust the motivation, then you can say, oh, this person lost it, really lost it, man, he's got a problem, he should really get some anger management, you know? That's fine think that, I don't care. I'll go into retreat. I'm not going to go to anger management except for going to retreat. I really don't mind. You know. But, but the, I've never used in any Dharma talk the F word before. But I felt, okay, and I saw it was so premeditated. I mean, I signaled, signaled, apologize to Jeannie because she is a very dear friend. Um, but what's that word, the F word, mean? It has nothing to do with sexuality. When we say F you, it's denigration. That's all it is, denigration. And I just think of all the nouns that come in. You blank. It can be an adjective or a noun. You blank. You blank. You blank. It's always that, right? It's always denigration. It's putting not your quality down, your body, your mind. It's putting the person down, right? Always. And it's one of the meanest things you can possibly say. And that sh- that shows absolute lack of respect, absolute contempt. If you use the f word directed to another person, right? Well, I never did that. I screen through every speech. From my perspective, now you can say I, know, I don't know Dharma very well. That's fine, but I looked at the ten non-virtues. Did I violate any of the ten non-virtues? Did I lie in terms of speech? Obviously, any lying? Don't think so. Did I abuse any sentient being? Don't think so. Did I slander any sentient being? I quoted what was in the paper, and did I idle gossip? That depends on whether mental affliction is operating. Was there anger? Of course, there was anger. But, Shant- but I just read Shantideva, so you can refute Shantideva. You because this, this is the only exception for anger. All other forms of anger. Torch it. This is the only one I'm going to keep for as long as it's useful. And then I won't use it anymore. Right? So among all the non-virtues, the most terrible one, the most destructive one, is false views. don't have to accept that, but that's the Buddhist teaching. Because every time an atrocity is committed of any kind, there's always a view behind it that justifies it. Every single time. Doesn't matter. rape. Pillage, plunder, mass murder, there's always justification. And that's the view. You ra- somebody rapes a woman, and there's a view behind that that makes it acceptable in the mind of that person. Maybe as a whole collective. When there's gang rape and so forth, all the members of the gang, they share a common view. This is acceptable. This is really OK. It always comes back to view. We don't take views very seriously. I think a lo- in a lot of popularized Buddhism, Views are not taken very seriously. Ah, it doesn't really matter what you believe. I mean, just be here now. You know, some people believe this. What does it really matter? I know materialists are really sweet. I know Buddhists are really idiots. What does it really matter what you believe? Or I, I, one of the most prominent Buddhist teachers around wrote a book, so I'm going to leave so vague you can possibly guess who it, who it is. And he said, well, when it comes to reincarnation, one shouldn't abandon it too casually. I've been, I'm being, one should not abandon it. One should not reject it too casually. That is, reject it after you've, been more than casual, I guess. I'm being interviewed right now for a newspaper, for some yeah, for, for a newspaper. The guy's sympathetic to what I'm doing. He said, But Alan, you know, um, Buddhism has a lot to offer for the existential environmental crises that face the modern world. But you know, that issue about reincarnation and karma, you know, we just don't really like that and there's not much evidence for it. So why not just dispel that? What we like is mindfulness and compassion. Okay? Do you think that happens very often? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. People completely reject reincarnation karma. In other words, the Buddha was just having a bad night on the night of his enlightenment, because he said, I saw with direct, with direct perception. I saw my past lives. I saw this. I saw that. And these people who call themselves Buddha said, well, no, you didn't. Or the people recording it, they got it wrong. So it's either total lack of trust in the Buddha or the Dharma or the Sangha, but it's total lack of trust. That's their choice. I mean, it's freedom. It's a free country, free world, and I'm happy for that. But I don't see many voices that are stridently condemning it. Not the people. That's why I'm not making any names here. I have no against, nothing against any person. But views are important. Views are important. And to see Dharma gutted in the way it is so frequently nowadays. Give people only what they like to hear. So somebody wrote me recently, um, you were so angry last night, it was painful to watch you and painful to listen to you. Okay, that's your perception. I respect that, but that wasn't the only perception. Is it pleasant to hear somebody assaulting a view that is destroying humanity? No, it's not pleasant. But if you think that Dharma, talk, dharma talks are all supposed to be pleasant, I think you have a very naive view of Dharma. When the Buddha would teach Vinaya in the Pali Canon, he would say it, sometimes say, Monks, if you can bear it, listen. It doesn't sound like he's going to talk to somebody, it just just gives them a real kick. So on the whole, I would say this is a rule of thumb. And that is, when I'm doing my strident critiques, I've refuted that with logic and, imp- and empirical evidence more times than I can count, in more books than I can count. You know, None of them get reviewed in any of the Buddhist journals. They're all ignored, because I think they would probably lose some of their readership. Because a lot of the readership or people who don't believe in reincarnation karma. They like secular Buddhism. And Mike, Mike comes in and I'm assaulting scientific materialism. And there are many Buddhist teachers who say, Well, we'll teach Buddhism that don't, don't contradict scientific materialism, then we'll have fewer fewer subscribers. We'll have fewer students coming to our retreats. I'd rather have no no students coming to my retreats. I'd rather be in solitary retreat rather than betray the Dharma. And that's betraying the Dharma. Come on. It's not Zen, it's not Chan, it's not Theravada, it's not Tibetan, it's not any school. It just throws out the the lifeblood of the Buddha Dhamma. So sure it was anger, but it was so premeditated. Sure it was harsh speech. But coming back to that F word, it's denigration, it's contempt, and it's pointed at a person. So think of that whole bandwidth of words people use when they say F-U, and then they'll say something. Well, here's the one that takes the cake. You have no awareness of the information I'm conveying to you right now. That's what that one, that's what that article in the New York Times by Princeton neuroscientist said. You have no awareness of information. You're wrong. Don't trust your intuition. Don't trust your intuition. Trust me. I'm a neuroscientist. Your attention and your awareness are cartoons. That's what he said, cartoonish. Complete fiction. Don't trust yourself. And the reason why, this all of your experiences are delusional, and you are nothing. You are a silicon chip with a very elaborate program. Now, can you think of all the words people use to denigrate other people? Is there anything that low? That you have no awareness, which means you have no Buddha nature, don't trust your intuition, you have no subjective awareness, you are basically a glorified silicon chip, because we can pour aw- awareness and attention into a silicon chip, and that's all your brain is. Or as another person said, you are, uh, you are a mindless robot composed of innumerable, tiny mindless robots. And he's the most prominent philosopher in America. If these people were nutcases out there on the fringe,
1: then I'd, I'd, I'd throw it off.
0: They're silly, of course. But when it's in the New York Times by a Princeton neuroscientist, by the most prominent philosopher in the country, when this is the view of the man directing the National Institute of Mental Health, and it is, When do we stop just debating and writing scholarly papers? When? I mean, there's a point where you have to raise your voice. You say everything you need to say. The evidence, the empiricism, the creaks, I've done that in seven academic books published by Oxford University Press, Columbia University Press. Innumerable chapters in academic books, I've written scientific papers and so forth. The impact's almost nothing, except for a very small number of people. So on occasion, when it seems helpful, and not necessarily so helpful for 40 people here, but maybe for among people listening, 2,000, to show them that this view has no credibility at all. First you refute it, but then you show this is absolutely disgusting. There's disgusting behavior, racism, sexism, slave trade, etc., etc. There's behavior that if you're not experiencing moral outrage, what's wrong with you? Really, is there no time for... And I don't mean moral outrage against human beings. But I said that, and I meant it, and it was true. No anger, no ill will towards any sentient being. If we are then we stop. But if it's clean, it's just going to the views. They should be torched. You know, torched. So, I mean, they really made, these views, they've already wiped out whole swaths of human civilization. Chinese civilization, Tibetan, Mongolian, this goes on. I mean, they've, they've torched whole civilizations. You know. And if you couple it with the hedonic, values and consumer-driven way of life, they really may doom the whole planet. So if we're not feeling some passion about that, then what do you feel passion for? Baseball? I mean, what? If that's not worth passion, something that can destroy humanity and the planet, so materialists are thinking, now, let's get our rockets ready. I mean, there's a new movie coming out called Interstellar. And that's after we've completely spoiled this planet beyond all recognition. The lucky ones are heading off in rockets to go to a nearby planet to start to do it again. To do it again, having learned nothing. So if there were intergalactic people watching, they would say, but this is the Ebola virus, it's called humanity, and they destroy planets. It only takes them about 200 years, as soon as scientific materialism comes in. I mean, for 200,000 years, we're doing okay. But as soon as scientific materialism comes in, and that's exactly when it occurred, then we're just chewing this planet alive, and we'll be finished by the end of the century, and then most people will die, but maybe a few lucky ones will get off, and they can do this to another planet. You know." And this is entertainment. You know. So it's time for high indifference. But where we're stopping in the text, where we'll stop very shortly, is the end of this section on transitional process of meditation. So you know, it well, there's nothing really, no major content coming. The next one is on the transitional process of dying, and that includes the bardo of dharmata, Bardo of it's not, It's, it's well-known, but not widely known. And this is where having slipped into the clear light, if you realize it, you realize it. If you don't, you're just kind of bewildered for a little while and you pass right on through. What comes up next is just one after another of these archetypal peaceful and wrathful deities. Peaceful and wrathful deities. Hundred of them, right? Uh, and you either recognize their empty nature and realize them as expressions of your own ripa, in which case you're liberated. Or you don't see their empty, na- empty nature, and then you reify them, and then you act with horror and disgust and outrage and so forth to the angry ones, because you don't like angry deities, they're supposed to be nice. And then you get craving, craving, craving for the, for the peaceful ones. And so you had a little tiny facsimile of a wrathful deity
1: last Saturday.
0: And then you can see for yourself. Was there any awareness that there's no one here? There's nothing here from my own side? Was some sense of the emptiness of the teacher? If not, you've not been practicing Dzogchen at all. And was there any sense that maybe there's a possibility of rage coming out that has no sense of being as a target only the causes of suffering and they should be torched in any way effective effective for one person not effective for another so of course did anybody think i thought well, that was going to be really good news and everybody's going to be happy at the end of it. did anybody think i thought everybody in this room would be just so tickled pink at the talk last saturday i'm not that stupid some people yes, some people no. But if no, yours isn't the only perspective. And that'll be go for the podcast. I'm sure now people not listening to the podcast, because they heard Saturdays. Well I don't want to hear any more of that. And that's fine. That's fine. I'm not looking for clients.
1: Look at your own mind.
0: Look at your own mind. And I'll tell you a rule of thumb that may or may not be true. You can check. When people hear such rage, but used with a very sharp knife and very precisely, I never nicked any of the people speaking. That is the you know the writers and so forth. I didn't. I know it. I watched it. it didn't feel that way either. It didn't feel like I wanted to stab them or anything. No. I was. There's a the person there. There's the view. The person's views can change tomorrow. But that view is. It's worse than any of you I've heard in history. Scientific materialism is really awful, but when it's that level, where they even say F you down to the point that you're a silicon chip, deny that you even have awareness, they insult your intelligence to that level that on their authority you say, oh, I guess I'm really not aware at all. Can you imagine? I don't know any religion that's ever done that to its followers. So denigrating. This is the deepest denigration you can possibly give to any sentient being to say, you're not a sentient being. Think of all the other ones. They say you're an animal, you're this, you're that, you're that, but it's all within the realm of sentient being. You know, unless you just metaphor, like you're cow feces or something like that. But that's just metaphor. But when they mean it literally, there's nothing so denigrating. Nothing so denigrating. And then when it's back with science and taught at a major university, if it's not time for passion, I guess there's just no time for passion. Then we say, well, people have their views. What are you going to do? You know, People say that but B- Buddha never taught reincarnation karma. He was basically a materialist at heart. What are you going to do? I mean, people say, it doesn't really matter what you say. Let's just sit quietly and be aware of whatever comes up. Okay, then that you've, just, you've just done the death knoll for Buddhism. Now there's no Buddhism left. There's no Buddhism. People have been know- knowing how to sit quiet for a long time. Nobody needed the Buddha to tell them how to sit quietly and be aware. Nobody needs anybody. Woodchucks know how to do that. You know, really. So we do move on to high equanimity, this great equanimity. Time into the cooler. But actually I feel as peaceful now as I did last Saturday, or as upset as I did last Saturday. It comes from the same place. You don't have to believe that, I'm just telling you what is my experience. Of course, when passion comes up, of course it's passion, but it's not directed to a human being. So this great equanimity, may why couldn't all sentient beings Dwell in great equanimity, free of attachment and aversion to that which is near and far. So you're familiar with it, hopefully from last time. So I'm going to interpret in the context of this retreat, not simply go back to enemies and friends. What is near? Attachment to the near. One's own views, one's own views, one's own opinions one's own well-being, right? My views. Gyatrata Mache, my revered lama, ever so often, I mean it's been going on for years, when he sends a special message to his students or he gives them a special talk, he says almost every single time, he says, you've got to let this one go. My way, my way. It's all along his mantra. This is what you have to let go. My way, my way. My way is the only real way. If people have other ways, that's not my way and insisting my way because i have the right perspective i heard correctly my way he said give it a rest give it a rest and he really he just hammers again and again and again and again live in harmony with each other and quit insisting on my way if you don't like a certain teacher teaching then nobody should like that teaching because it was bad why because that's my view give it a rest this is one of the root delusions. Look into Buddhism, the mental factors. Clinging to your own view as supreme, that is one of the root mental, mental afflictions. Not acknowledging that anybody else have, might have an alternate view that might even be better. You know? So this equanimity is recognizing this is my perspective. And it's true from my perspective, perhaps, but it could be flawed also, because after all, I do have mental afflictions. Maybe I'm not seeing as clearly as other people. Maybe I'm projecting. How do I know the other person's motivation? Because everything hinges on motivation. When all is said and done, everything hinges on motivation. There's no verbal or physical act that you can say that is intrinsically evil. No, Not intrinsically. The chances are, if they're doing ethnic cleansing, really, really high. But in principle, no, it always boils down to motivation. That's why one of the bodhisattva precepts is if, with bodhicitta, you see that you must violate one of the physical or verbal non-virtues for the sake of sentient beings. You commit that which outwardly looks like a non-virtue. And if you don't, you've broken your broken your bodhisattva precept. It's one of the precepts, right? It's there. I didn't make that one up. So outwardly it looks, oh, you're bad. That's not what Buddhists do. I know Buddhists are not... Well, that's because you haven't taken the bodhisattva precepts. Things are much simpler in the Theravada. The talk I gave last night from Theravada, totally inappropriate. And if I were teaching Theravada, I wouldn't do it. I'm not compulsive. At least not as compulsive as some people may think. Theravada, absolutely inappropriate. You never use anger. There's never any use for anger. That's Mahayana. And let alone Vajrayana. Wrathful deities and all of that. So, that's The clinging to, the attachment to my view, my priorities, my well-being. I didn't like to hear that. I didn't like, therefore it was no good. Never mind if other people like. They don't count. It's not me. Man, you did wrong wrong because I didn't like it. Okay, that's fine. That's called clinging to your own views. Clinging to your own perspective is supreme. And not practicing what I've been teaching for the last seven weeks. When the eruptions come up, relax. Don't reify them. Don't cling to them. Relax. The eruptions may be beneficial to someone. If they're not to you, big deal. Let it flow right over. Relax. If you can't listen to a Dharma talk without seizing up, you'll never be able to listen to your own mind without seizing up because it's much more intimate. You're stuck, and which means you have not learned what I've been teaching for the last seven weeks. The rule of thumb I was about to say, and I'll finally say it, with regard to then we're finished with the Saturday. Saturday's finished doesn't exist anymore. Is Here's just a question insofar as you rena- resonated with you, or there was something in your psyche, something in your being, that felt assaulted by my words, then you would burn, because you'd feel I'm assaulting you. Insofar as you identified with anything that I was attacking, you will burn, because I was torching it with the most vile word I could use, picked up, put down, I'm not going to use it again, I've never used it before, don't, really, don't imagine using it again, maybe, maybe not, but only if it seems really appropriate. But if you are identifying with what I was torching, you'll feel torched. <coughs> I'm sorry, but I wasn't attacking you. You were clinging to a log that I was burning. I told you I was going to burn it so you can get off the log or you can be burned. But I wasn't there to burn you. Nobody was my target. Believe it or not, I, you know, it's your business, but that I'm just telling you what was coming from my side. Now we move on. But that's finding this great equanimity is releasing that. Releasing all views, clinging to all views. That symbol, resting your own awareness. So you're not averse to other people's views, other people's techniques, methods, and so forth and so on. And you're not clinging to my way, my, my approach, my thoughts, my perspective, my, my, my. That's just part of the problem. That's not equanimity. So there's one level. And then two more. And that is there, in Mayana Buddhism especially, jivetar and sipetar, two extremes. One is close, one's far. And that is, and I think we all resonate with this, isn't it nice just to be in your room by yourself, quiet, unperturbed by anybody, especially if you can hang out for a while and just have everything taken care of and no noise and nothing, just be able to sit and follow your breath? Isn't that really nice? That's close. It's called the extreme of pacifism this extreme of quietude. ji ta means the extreme of peace. And then, I'm saying this, the timing is perfect. We're coming towards the end of the retreat. I presume there was ho- hopefully talking this morning, and then afternoon, lunch, so for the next three days, in the spirit of loving kindness, of friendship, that you can network as much as you can, maintain the virtual sangha when you're gone from here. Uh, but it's nice to be in retreat. You know, it's nice to be withdrawn from this world that is so messed up, so, so, so messed up. And we're all going out into the world where people are not practicing meditation six, seven hours a day. You know. They're doing other things. And they're not recognizing, many of them are not recognizing mental afflictions as mental afflictions. And so, boy, I don't like that. I, don't, I, I want another retreat. I want, I want another retreat. I don't want to be with these people. I don't want to be in this world. So those are two extremes. Attachment to the peace an aversion to this world of becoming where also you never know what's coming up. You know, when you're in a retreat, I mean really, guess what's for breakfast? <laughs> Gee, do you think there might be papaya? Maybe some rice? Maybe some eggs? Maybe some fruit juice of three kinds? <laughs> Maybe some of that square bread? Gee, what do you think? What do you think for lunch? Are we gonna be surprised today? You think would be really, wow, I never saw that coming. There's, you know, it's a bit boring, but it's kind of like, okay, I know what to expect. I know what to expect. And we don't have people coming inside. You know, they, they blocked us off here, so all the tourists, all the people, they, they don't get to come here. So we're protected from all those people. You know, So, ha, ah, you know, this is nice. But then outside of this is the world of becoming. And becoming means you never know what's becoming. You never know what's coming up. Go to the airport, go to HKT. You, know? you don't know what's coming up. You don't know what's going to happen there. A friend of mine got beaten when he was in this car. In the H-gate, in the oh, oh, somebody came over to the window and punched him in the face. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I doubt that will happen. But it could. You know, not not all Pukatees are peaceful. You know, it happens. So aversion to the world of becoming that world of uncertainty, that messy, squabbly, mentally afflicted. No world out there, I don't want that. I want to be in a peaceful place. And I want that dharma teacher to be more peaceful too. He's got to see, I've got to work on that. He should not disturb my mind like that. I don't like it. It's unpredictable. He's nice, 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 and then he screws up again. Then he's nice, nice, and then he screws up again. We should stop that. Not nice dharma teacher. Not nice. Behave better. Not acting like a good dharma teacher. I'll teach you how to teach dharma. You know, I know how. My way is better. So that's one type of extreme, free of that, free of the attachment to the serenity, the quiet, the solitude, free of the aversion of getting out into the messy world, dealing with people with really virulent mental affliction, and just all the, the mess, the complexity of it. And then, of course, there's the attachment to, to nirvana itself, that which is near. As you come closer and closer, that seems near. Samsara seems to fade off, be that losery world. But nirvana has a quality, this is actually real, in the sense of being ultimately an ultimate truth. It's real. And samsara seems so illusory. And one can easily imagine how, when you when you have tasted both ponds, and you know, it dipped into what both ponds, you might wonder, why did anybody want to deal with that? This one is just pure, all the way up and all the way down. It's just this nectar, and this one is a garbage dump. It's water, but mixed with all that sewage and everything else. Why would anybody want to go there, if you can go there? To be attached to the deep serenity of nirvana and samsara, but, you know, it's just too messy. Oh, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. It's a wonderful story. True story. Actually, years after I knew it had ha- happened, because Gujaratim told me this story, years, years later I met somebody who was actually there at the event, and he confirmed. So this is not a it sounds mytho- mythological or like one of those parables, it never happened. It was uh, Geshe Pemba, so happy to tell names. You know, when it's virtue, I'm happy to tell names. I love to tell names, because this is a real person. Otherwise, you might not even believe it again. Geshe Pemba, he was the personal attendant of Geshe Uh I don't think I've ever met in my life a more humble person, just breathtakingly humble. And uh, so he was out walking. And there was a westerner with him, because I met the westerner. And they came, this was in Dharmazala. And they came, I never saw this, I didn't know it existed, but they came to an open sewage pit, open sewage. I'd never seen it, but it was there. It was basically, it was just, it was filth. It was human waste, and it was deep, and it was open. And so Geshe is just walking along, and he sees a calf had fallen in, into this human feces, and so forth. I mean, just the most filthy thing you can imagine. And it couldn't get out, couldn't get out, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's panicking, and you know, it's up to its neck in this, you know. And the fellow, who the, the herder who's there to look after the that little herd of cattle, they have them all over the place in India, he was taking them by the tail and trying to pull him out. But of course, standing in clean ground and trying to pull him out, couldn't get the traction. So he's just basically stretching the cat's tail. And that was just adding more to the misery of the calf, I'm sure. He's already up to his neck in human feces, and then he's having his tail yanked. And it was just going nowhere. And so it's just a a totally miserable situation. So what does Geshe Pemba do? He rolls up his robes and jumps into the sewer. Jumps into the sewer, uh, probably up to his chest. And he then gets, with his own arms, he reaches calf and then takes the calf out and rescues the calf. And of course, it's not his calf. And I think, oh, the, the person who saw it said, the owner, was a Brahman, wearing pure white, he's watching his, his um, employee trying to get the calf out, but he's not getting anywhere near that surah. I mean, this is as impure as it gets. And Brahmins, they are very keen on purity. So the owner's watching. The, the guy who's paid to do this is trying to hang him out. Geshe Pembo had no personal engagement with this. He's the one that jumps in you know, like up to his chest, and takes the calf out and saves it. And then just walk away like nothing happened. You know, I was like, but that's what everybody do, right? You'd, you'd save the calf. I mean, nobody else is saving the calf, so of course you save the calf. But he didn't say anything. He just, well, you know, he'll need a bath. And that was it. So Gejharapnam told us this story in 1976, I remember. We'd come back, we'd been in India, and he, we all came to Switzerland, he and his disciples. And uh, he was using this as an analogy, of course, that Geshe was enacting the conduct of a bodhisattva, that you'll jump into the sewer of samsara, animal realm, preta realm, hell realm. You'll jump in out of compassion. And you'll get filthy in the process. But no, you won't. Only your body gets filthy. Motivation is pure, pure, pure. He said, that's how the bodhisattva does. The arhat will look out from outside, maybe, and feel great compassion. Oh, may you be free. Oh, calf, may you be free. May you swiftly be free of this feces and all of that, but not going in. No, thank you. I've already been there. I, I know what it's like to get out, and I'm not going back. But the bodhisattva willfully and compassionately goes back. And so, then one of the... Uh, I can't remember who it was. I don't think it was me, but I can't remember. One of the disciples listening to Geshe Uh then asked, and some of you know it's coming. Asked, well, are, are we are we like the Bodhisattva? Are we like Yeshi you know? yeah. And Geshe Ye and said, No, you're the calf. <laughs> 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 so we're finished with Saturday. There's no reason to refer it. And accept whatever you like, you know. My job is simply to try to teach Dharma in a variety of ways. The most helpful way I can, with the same motivation every single time. That's it. And it's bound. No matter what I said, no matter what, how were I taught, no matter what, even if I'm Buddha Shakyamuni himself, every single time it's going to be helpful to some people and not helpful to others. Not everybody became a follower of the Buddha. Right? Even the Buddha. And you know, compare the Buddha to me. You know, ridiculous. See, see fly to the sun. So we're we'll finished with that. But there was something quite inspiring. Uh, The insight, it was direct realization by a person I very much wanted to meet as soon as I heard about him and then didn't have the opportunity. Um, His name was Franklin Merrill Wolfe. And I know a lot about him. I won't tell you the whole story, it's rather long. But I was in the Eastern Sierras in California on my motorcycle, one of the great mundane adventures of my life. Somebody told me about him, so I, I headed back down to seek him out, because this was a forest ranger, and he thought, I was a Buddhist monk at the time, traveling across the country on a BMW motorcycle with my robes, and uh, <laughs> this forest ranger thought, well, he, I think he'd really like to meet you, because he's quite a sage, and I think you'd like to meet him as well. I said, sounds great. So I sought him out, I sought him out, and then I, then I learned that he this was May 1986, I learned he had died in October 1985, at the age of 98. He was an ex- utterly extraordinary individual. Great philosopher, mathematician, of a, a practitioner of Vedanta, but pretty much self-taught. He had no real guru. His wife was really his consort. Really a spiritual, profound spiritual spiritual partner. Uh, and she was a Sufi. She was a Sufi. Um, and then when he was... 1936, so I do the math, I think it was 48. I think when he, when he was halfway through his life, or just, just about halfway, 48, 49, I think 48, he had this just spontaneous flow of realizations. Uh, it's, they're all written down, Frank Merrill, if you'll find it. And then he lived for another 48 years or so, something like that. And then he... Con- but it continued. It wasn't just a little spike. He had a transformation that was so deep that the energetic flow of it continued for the rest of his life. And from my perspective, now I'm just about to express what is simply an opinion. But when I, I've spoken at length with people who have devoted their adult lives to studying him, I know his step-granddaughter very well. I've led maybe 20 retreats at his, in his home because uh, I became very, very good friends with the, with the owners, his heirs. Um, I've, read, I've read his material and so forth, so I have more than a casual acquaintance with his life, his teaching and so forth. It appears to me that he had realization of Rikpa. I can't draw any other conclusion because I studied Dzogchen. And uh, although at that time he didn't know anything about Dzogchen because there's nothing to know, there was nothing in English. Evans Wentz came out after that. This was 1936 when he had his extraordinary flow, sequence of realizations, and the realizations came to a culmination in what's called what he called the high indifference. The high indifference. And he didn't know of anybody ever having achieved it before, because he felt it was beyond nirvana. He felt he had already experienced nirvana, and this was beyond... He never saw it coming. He f- found this unity with, with God, he found nirvana, he thought he was finished. He thought, wow, that was, that was quite a role. You know? And then, unexpectedly, then came this final, final crescendo that he never anticipated, and that was, in fact, the culmination. So, by all means, an extraordinary individual, I think a Mahasattva, a great being. And he did happily write down what he had experienced, and with great finesse, because he was highly trained. He was trained at Stanford, Harvard, so very well educated in philosophy and mathematics. And then later, years later, uh, when Tartantuku, one of the first, he and Maché, came to the United States, then he heard about Dzogchen, learned something about Dzogchen by way of Tartantuku. And he said, That's it, that's it. I have 400 acres here, may I offer them to you? He wanted to offer his because it's exquisite land, high desert, fantastic place. Uh, he wanted to offer the land, at least a major part of it, maybe all of it, to Tartantuku to make his Dzogchen center. And Tuku refused, didn't have use for it. Um, but he felt, and moreover, also after his experience, he learned about the Mahayana Buddhism. And then he immediately resonated, oh, but the Bodhisattva ideal, that's what you don't find in the Vedanta, and that's absolutely important. And then we don't learn about Dzogchen, but that's it, that's it. So as soon as he, after the experience, he learned about the Bodhisattva ideal, and Dzogchen, he said, but that, that's, that, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. So um, that's a little, tiny, brief snippet on Franklin Merrill-Wolf. Um, and here's simply a brief account, written by a fellow I know, he's a very intelligent, well, very well-informed, his name is Tomi- Thomas McFarlane, and he's written a very nice synopsis here of Franklin merrill Wolfe's own experience. Bear in mind, this is not his philosophical conjecture or a view or what have you, this is, you see, this is just what happened, right? It's like going to another planet, this is what it looked like. So here it is, just listen and so see if it's helpful and then we will get to the practice. So here it is. There was a distinction, that is, in terms of his experience, there was a distinction between being bound to embodied consciousness and not being so bound, with a subtle attachment to being not bound. Counteracting this subtle attachment, however, was Wolfe's. his name was Frank Merrill Wolfe. Wolfe's prior acceptance of the Bodhisattva vow, a commitment to the value of relative manifestation and embodiment motivated by compassion for all sentient beings." So it seems, again, he must have had some exposure to Mahayana even prior to his experience, because that's what it just said, and this guy's knowledgeable. So and there was Mahayana Buddhist, Buddhist literature out by 1936. With this motivation, with the bodhisattva vow, with this motivation, Wolf resisted his strong inclination to retreat into the transcendent bliss of nirvanic consciousness. Instead, he sacrificed his strictly personal enjoyment of those transcendent values in order to maintain a relative embodiment and help liberate all sentient beings. This act of compassion and ultimate renunciation led to an unexpected fun- second fundamental recognition that resolved the residual tensions between the universe and nirvana. So, Eddie said that he made a choice. Before he had this experience of high indifference, he made a choice. He saw he's drawn here, he has an aversion here to re embodiment, basically but he made a choice. It was a bodhisattva choice. And having made that choice, then the unexpected happened. You never saw it coming. The realization with a capital R represented a complete equilibrium. Not only a relative equilibrium between objects, but also an ultimate equilibrium between relative and absolute levels of consciousness. Because this realization does not give any more valuation to nirvana, than to the universe, and recognizes no ultimate difference between the two. Wolf called it the high indifference. It is the complete resolution of tension between all opposites, the complete transcendence of all distinctions, including the distinction between the transcendent and the relative. At this profoundly deep level of recognition, all self-identity, both in the highest sense of the transcendental self and the lower sense of the ego self, was no more. In Wolf's words, I was no more, and God was no more, but only the eternal, which sustains all gods and all selves. Does that sound like that to you? And he was not a scholar of Dzogchen. Back then, there was nothing on Dzogchen. Evans Wentz hadn't written the first book. So maybe you see it, maybe it's not wild conjecture on my part. And then that reinforcement, because it's one of my, again, an opinion. I want to be very clear when I do that. An opinion that there are, in fact, more roads to the great perfection than just through Shravakayana, Bodhisattva Vajrayana, and then the the ninth yana. That is a path. It's a path that I feel, that's my path, that's my where I feel at home. I feel at home all the way through from Sravakayana on. But my sense is it's not the only path. No. And that makes it all the more universal. Okay. Invariant across all cognitive frames of reference. Yeah. So. so I hope these words were helpful. My intention is always to be helpful. I have no, no question that sometimes my words are unskillful but I don't think they're necessarily unskillful for everybody. Maybe just a lot of people. So let's practice, shall we? (Sessing)
1: 육천 삼, 베마, 개사, 동보, 라, 양생, 조키, 무두, 음, 어, 기, 유, 기, 눕, 삼, 삼. 베, 마, 개, 사, Guru Pema Siddhi Um Um Morgay Yuke Nukchan Pema Gesa Dombola Yamzin Chokhi Mudu Pema Juneshesh Suda Kodu Kando Mambu Kod Shingelapchi Sheksus Guru Pema Oh, my home. Better go to Bemis City home.
0: switch postures now. In the spirit of equilibrium, of equilibrium, of equipoise, of equanimity, settle your body, speech and mind in the natural state. And as we enter into the meditative cultivation of great equanimity, Maha Upeksha, we begin with a question that you know well by now. Why couldn't all sentient beings dwell in great equanimity, free of attachment to that which is near and aversion to that which is far? Ask the question with wisdom and seek an answer. How could that possibly occur? Rouse the aspiration. May we dwell in such great equanimity, free of attachment to the near and aversion to the far. If you wish, once again, you may, of course, with each out-breath, breathe out this calm, clear, pure light of equanimity to sentient beings in all directions. Then if you can tap into the depths of your own nature from which this can become an authentic resolve or promise, then arouse the resolve, I shall make it so. I shall enable all sentient beings to dwell in this great equanimity, free of attachment to the near and aversion to the far. And as you breathe out this light, breath by breath, venturing into the realm of possibility. Imagine the sentient beings all around you, cultivating and then realizing such great equanimity. Then you may call on the supplication, arouse the supplication, may the, may the Gurus and the Enlightened Ones, the Gurus and the Gods bless me that I may be enabled to do so. With each in-breath, imagine drawing in the blessings of all the Enlightened Ones, and the very out-breath, blessing the world with this clear, gentle, even light of great equanimity. Then release all appearances and aspirations. Let your awareness rest evenly in its own stillness and luminosity.
1: And also, the meetings this morning will be 15 minutes late.